Scratch and Sniff with Nick Randall on RTE Pulse. Sponsored by Gay Community News, GCN.ie. Your essential guide to gay Ireland. interested in men but I knew that was forbidden and wicked not that I thought it was wicked but um, that I had to protect myself my father said dentistry would be a very useful uh, career for you you can use it any country in the world and as a Jew you might be thrown out any time from there still it remains in me that that possibility through the pub very slowly looking at people both sides what sort of people what they were doing I wasn't used to a pub either because I'd been told as a child that pubs are wicked places I then walked out the other door the other side but the next day I was back at last my heart's an open door and my Secret loves no secrets anymore. As Doris Day's Secret Love became number one in the British charts in April 1954, many young gay people of the time had to not only closely guard their homosexuality, but quietly work out a way to actually meet like minded people. Even in a city like London, it was not always obvious where to go, as no gay pubs, clubs, or of course internet sites were then available. One man who struggled through this very difficult period, going on to be a campaigner for gay rights and later a gay historian, is Michael Brown. Born in the 1930s, he experienced the Second World War, the period leading up to the Wolfenden Report, the first gay pride march in the early 70s, the AIDS crisis in the 80s and beyond. Well, Michael still campaigns and lectures about his experiences, and today SNS is honoured that he has kindly agreed to come on the show to talk about his life. So, ladies and gentlemen, a huge round of applause, please for Mr. Michael Brown. So, Michael Brown, welcome so much to Scratch and Sniff. We're very, very honoured and excited to have you here. Let's talk a little bit about the early days, then, because obviously we're fascinated to know what was life like growing up as a gay man and also a Jewish gay man from the Second World War onwards. Uh, you know, obviously the Nazis didn't particularly like them. Well, Gays or Jews? Uh, when I got on the scene, I used to ask older queens... What was it like in the 40s during mm. the war? Uh, my experience of what we now call gay life, we didn't mm. have that word. It hadn't yet been used, mm. invented, or come from the New York, I believe. So I used to ask them, and the main thing that they told me about was army life. Soldiers were possibly going to die the next day, and they were up for it, for an experience that... They've thought about it. But the other thing was in London and the other big cities, we had blackout. Blackout meant that at night time, uh, all the street lights were out and all the windows had uh, thick curtains on. So there were no lights showing so that German bombers um, couldn't see the city properly, where to, where to come. Uh, obviously, they could see the river, but there you go. Mm. Um, now, blackout meant for gay men... We're here, hey? Yes, we're here, Cheeky, hey. cheeky, cheeky. Yes. 
you could do what you like in doorways and so on. And mm. the police were, the police, Lily Law was far too busy often. Um, they had other things well, to think about. There was about. a war on, for goodness sake. There was a war on, for good, yes. yes. So uh, doorways and things and men in uniform around, young ones and... It was and fun was had by all, but presumably you weren't at the age where this was going. Were you no, quite young? That's because I was at my mother's till eighteen. So what sort of age were you during the Second World War then? I was born in 1932, December. So you can work it out. So about eight uh, when the war started. Uh, Ten to thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Nine to thirteen. Well, what are you, what are your memories? Oh, the memories of the war. Well, of course, I didn't have any gay identity. Sure. I knew I was interested in men, but I knew that was forbidden and wicked. Not that I thought it was wicked, but um, but I had to protect myself. Um, no. I got bullied because I, I must, they must have thought I was a bit camp or something. I did mm. get bullied physically and uh, psychologically, mm. verbally, and I was also bullied because I was a Jew. Although it was a Jewish district, I remember comments like, um, this was after the war, you should have been in the gas chamber. Or the German teacher at school was noted for being anti-Semitic, so all the Jewish boys, the alternative was Latin. We all learned Latin instead. <laughs> Everybody did French. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a nice time for them. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, I took flight into study, and I was always top of the class in everything, virtually. And, of course, that made me a SWAT, and that made me more unpopular. <laughs> you can't win, can you? Yeah. What, what was your field of expertise as you were getting older? Oh, dental surgery. Dental surgery? I didn't know that. I right. was pushed to the dental hospital in Leicester Square. I was kept ignorant by my parents of education and careers. There was no careers master or anything like that. My father said, dentistry will be a very useful uh, career for you. You can use it any country in the world, and as a Jew, you might be thrown out any time. From... <laughs> still, it remains in me, that, that possibility. Right. Um, you, need, you need a career that can be used anywhere, and that can keep you afloat. But, I mean, very sage advice, if that was how it was in those well, days. Well, it might have been if Hitler had invaded. We're gonna hang out the washing on the Siegfried line. Have you any dirty washing, mother dear? We're gonna hang out the washing on the Siegfried line. Cos the washing day is here. Weather, the weather may be wet or fine We'll just rub along without a care We're gonna hang out the washing on the Siegfried line If the Siegfried line's still there I, I'm a Londoner and I left home at 18 to go and live in a bedsit in the West End. Uh -huh. I stayed in Upper Barclay Street in a bedsit with Colonel and Mrs Grundy. And, uh... And, of course, I was right near the places that gay people would go, but they weren't the kind of places that exist today. And it was extremely difficult to find out where they were. And you imagine there was no gay media. There were no gay shops, of course. Uh, there were no gay role models. You didn't know what other people were doing except what you could read in the ordinary press. And the only mentions normally of, we didn't have the word gay either, mm. um, of homosexuals was when somebody was convicted in court or arrested. And that was invariably described as sordid, in the shadows, dirty men wearing dirty raincoats, doing things with boys, mixing it with paedophilia, that sort of reference. So it was all negative and there wasn't that much of it. I was very lucky that I happened to see an article in the New Statesman and it was about life in the West End and it mentioned amongst other things uh, sort of pubs that nowadays we would describe as bohemian or used to call bohemian. Mm. And it mentioned homosexuals would be there along with... Um, 
artists and musicians and maybe drugs and so on. So, and the one they mentioned, I tracked down. It was the um, Fitzroy Tavern in Charlotte Street. Gosh. Which still exists. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But it, it doesn't have a gay reputation anymore. Mm. And I don't know if you want me to tell you how I actually got in. I, I stood opposite, watching people go in, and I was dead scared in Charlotte Street. Mm. Uh, for Irish listeners, Charlotte Street's close to Good Street Tube Station mm. in London, central London. By the way, my mother's from Dublin. She came over to London in order to go on the stage, because her parents disapproved of... Um, don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Don't Wellington. put your daughter on the stage. <laughs> so I saw them go in and out, so I crossed the road and went in. But I was so trembling that I walked slowly in one door, and I walked through the pub very slowly, looking at people both sides, what sort of people and what they were doing. I wasn't used to a pub either because I'd been told as a child that pubs are wicked places and uh, I shouldn't never ever go in a pub. So it was a double problem. And uh, none of our family ever went to a pub. So uh, I then walked out the other door, the other side. But the next day I was back and I stayed and I bought a drink. And it was wonderful. And the only light... If you ever see Brighton Rock with Dickie Attenborough, there's a Bohemian pub in that at, near the beginning in Brighton, mm. uh, which shows the sort of atmosphere. What do you have? Oh, that's very kind of you. I have port, please. And my friends here, they take light ale. That's a very good idea. One port, two light ale. Right you are, sir. Aren't you having one? No, I, I've had enough. I'm working. Are you in the entertainment business, too? In a way. This gentleman's invited me to a repast at the Cosmopolitan. Tomorrow I'd be delighted, dear. But today I have a previous engagement with my friends, the brothers Trudy at the Dirty Dog. <laughs> <laughs> you sick or something? No, I'm all right. You're ever so queer. So I'm in this pub the second night and the third night and the fourth night mm. and so on. We want to know became, more, we want to know more. We're so excited. my regular. <laughs> And then I discovered, I got friendly with a couple of lesbians, mm -hmm. um, a young femme, very pretty, and her older uh, butch, butch bulldyke. Right. Butch dyke. So knuckles rapping against the floor and then lipstick lesbian, as they say. Oh, yes. yes. Well, the lipstick wasn't in yet. I mean, the term lipstick lesbian, it was femme. Yes, I'm, I was translating for my... Yes, yes. Both, okay. both of my younger listeners. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm using the early, early language. Mm. And uh, the older woman didn't mind my going with her girlfriend. We used to go around. She usually hung around in, in the background mm. because she wasn't didn't have much conversation. Mm. We We went to... There was the there were two or three other pubs in the same area. The Marquis of Granby, Rathbone mm -hmm. Place, which is just up the road. The Wheat Sheaf, the one I mentioned earlier, that was only slightly gay. And there was something we called the Beer House because it merely had a beer license, and that was in in an alleyway nearby. It's still there, but I don't know the pub name. Gosh. One night I went in. We all went in. The two women had been banned from the uh, Fitzroy Tavern. Because the older woman had been fighting. Oh, honestly, these that lesbians. Was a, that was a, <laughs> a stereotype for police. Lesbian. <laughs> so we Love were it. banned. And we went in the beer house. And I sat down with my femme friend. Um, I was, remember, I was 18, 19, and she was much the same. And uh, a man came over, obviously a straight man, and said, made advances to femme uh, pushy mm. pushy advances and she obviously turned away and didn't want him he kept on so I said to him this young lady is not interested in talking to you he just swept me aside he wasn't he just ignored me I didn't get anywhere he kept on and then this butch woman came from the back of the pub and she she came up to him and said, Did you hear? This, this young lady doesn't want you. Go away. He said, What's it to do with you? So 
So she rolled up her sleeves and took a boxing pose as if to punch him in the mm. ring. Mm. And he fled. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, good on her, I tell you. 24 hours a day. RTE Pulse. A bohemian pub really meant uh, the demi-monde, they call it. And that's where the word gay came from. There were gay women who were on the game and so on. And the gay life, which was, I think it was being on the game. Hmm. They gathered together. Yeah. And we got, well, unfortunately, there were lots of famous people in that pub. And I wish I'd got to know them. Um, famous artists, mainly. Or to be famous. Very famous. And um, Names, names, names. I think Francis Bacon went there. Okay. He certainly went to the pub up the road, a uh, short distance up the road, which I occasionally popped in, but I never heard of him. So, And um, Michael Cahoon, was it, and his boyfriend, the pair of gay artists. Oh, and photographers. And then you had sailors and soldiers in uniform. Big draw for me. <laughs> And, uh, I'm not saying a word. <laughs> and many of them were TBH. You're oh. looking. You're looking astounded. No, I was pretending. I was yeah. trying to style it out there. There were two kinds of, two kinds of gay language. Polari, yeah, which you may know about, uh, dear listeners, and uh, and lingo. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, TBH meant to be had. Oh right. Um, I like it. <laughs> and there were other words, there were all sorts of words, like Lily, meant Lily Law. The oh, yes, about. of course. This um, is Polari stuff, isn't it? This is on the verge of Polari. Right. I mean, a lot of people couldn't speak Polari, I couldn't, I knew just a few words. Hmm. But I know one or two people who can, and obviously Kenneth Williams whom I later met a few times. Oh, wow. Matron, please, I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> Obviously, during this time, you were very aware of all the places to go. You worked it out quite quickly as a young, intelligent 18-year-old. Presumably, the police must have been aware of these places as well. The police were. How but did that work out? The story goes, a major one, well, there were places in Fitzrovia, I'm mm. talking about, which is north of Oxford Street, mm. Rathbone <clears throat> Place and Char Charlotte Street. There were places in Soho, which is south of Oxford Street. And later I started going to them. So we're talking about the White Bear, which was in Piccadilly Underground uh, Station. Ward's Irish House in the dive bar in the basement. That was on Piccadilly Circus. Um, I didn't know all of them, just the ones, obviously, I went to. None of them was officially gay. That's the whole point about life in, in the 50s and in the provinces. They were bars merely where people would go and there'd be homosexual men, either like the white bear every night mm -hmm. but it was mixed there were straight men in there as well did the straight men pro guess that there were well, i'll tell you about that in a minute <laughs> they probably the enjoyed twice i picked <laughs> up men in the white bear and was walking them home discovered they were straight they didn't right. realize i picked them up oh bless them that's oh. quite sweet they just they just took you on your word you, you well, were getting I, on with them which I you chatted were. them up because one yeah i i wasn't <laughs> i was a little too fearful of um, pretty policemen i don't think pretty policemen were officially used at that point mm. but i knew there was entrapment yes entrapment. absolutely so my picking up style and for many people was oblique so, the, were the police aware of these pubs that gay people were. went to them? But did, did they do anything in particular, or, well, or did the they just the sort of... goes, hmm. in, in the Fitzroy Tavern, uh, the story is, money was collected for charity, cash, oh, right. coins and notes, and they were put into um, a muslin fabric bag, which was, which closed, which was twisted, the opening was twisted, and then fixed to the ceiling with a, a dart or nail or something. Then once a year, a celebrity would come and take the money down. Mm -hmm. I think about Christmas. Jane Mansfield did it one year. Really? So I'm told. 
and the money would go to the Police Benevolent Fund. That's right. the story. Okay, well, that's... Yes. Yeah. There were occasional raids. There were occasional raids um, here and there, but I'm told if there was a bit of protection that... Um, that they were told in advance mm. that oh, sort right. of thing would mm. happen and it wouldn't be severe. Mm. Um, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I've heard a similar story about uh, a big bar in Leicester Square and the vice squad visiting it regularly and money pass changing hands. Mm. This is another story. This is in the 80s. I think even in my time, I've ex- I've yes. remembered things like this happening. Yes. That raids were, or, or police would come to us on a certain day, and they yes. sort of knew it was going to happen. It was a bit of a nudge, nudge thing. Sure, but um, if they weren't paying, and there were bars that didn't even have a license, mm. uh, which I didn't go to because I didn't know about them. Mm. However, uh, what happened in the in the gay bars was socialising, and then there was a guy who came in used to play the piano. He played it in, I think, in the Queen's Arms, but it might have been another pub in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Sunday lunchtime, usually. Oh, and he would wear a kilt big, and very butch clothes, butch Scottish clothes. Mm. And he'd walk all the way from Chelsea to Fitzrovia mm-hmm. and play the piano. But when you spoke to him, he was so camp in his voice... <laughs> But he had these leather armbands on and all the rest of it. Right, there's quite a few people I know. Yeah, there were characters. <clears throat> there were, and you got to, you know, you got, when you talk to people, people knew other people. And I uh, d- did my best with the uh, the soldiers and the sailors. I'm sure you did, dear. I did get a very, very handsome sailor home. And uh, he was a beginner. I'm sure you instructed them and very well. We used to correspond with him in Portsmouth. Oh, that's lovely, but it yes. continued in some but it form. It suddenly stopped. Um, um, he sent me a Christmas card, hand-painted, which had drag queens on it. However, I'm almost certain that, that the mail was intercepted by the naval police, uh, whatever they call them, and that he got into trouble, I would uh, imagine. I didn't write anything in the letters that was yes. open. I never, ever did. No love letters from my lovers later or anything survives mm. because it was too dangerous to have material that could be used in the court as evidence mm. against you. Yeah, absolutely. And that applies to lots of people. There were a few people who were very open, very camp people usually because they were out in a sense, out. But the only people that were out, nobody was out, not even Quentin Crisp. Mm. They were just, those were just people everybody knew. The only people that are out were ones that were convicted in court, right. charged right. in the papers. Do you, do you think some uh, members of the public would see people like the Kenneth Williams types as just sweet young boys and didn't quite make that link because it was more of an innocent time, really? So, so I suppose some people who just were naturally quite effeminate yeah. were just sort of cuddled, really, and not really seen as... as I mean, am I right, or well, were they targeted? Pe- gay, well, large numbers of people uh, were not realised as being homosexual yeah or maybe homosexual just meant being camped to these yeah. people um because we know about liberace and and lots of and others queen victoria didn't believe the existence of lesbians going back quite That's a bit before your time obviously yes yes mm. um let me tell you about the a and b club because we had other places mm-hmm. apart from pubs okay they were clubs now the reason these clubs set up was because of drinking hours. They were very strict. Pubs closed about 10.30 or something like that. And then public transport closed shortly after anyway. Uh, But a lot of people like to drink, say, in the afternoon and later. To do that, you had to do it in a private place with a license, which would be a club. Mm. Members only, and guests couldn't buy drinks. They had to sign in, and the member had to buy the drinks for the guests. The guests had to sign in. And, of course, gay people took advantage of this. Uh, Sexually ambiguous people, Mm. but straight people as well. Yeah. 
and loose people and people loose. who like to get drunk a lot. Mm -hmm. However, they weren't officially gay. Like, nothing was officially homosexual. It just happened to be places where homosexuals uh, gathered. And occasionally there'd be a raid and they, running a disorderly house or something would happen mm. in court. Not usually, but sometimes. Now, mm -hmm. people wore suits, by the way. There was a social hierarchy of clubs and probably bars. So there were upper class ones, middle class and working class. Although people mixed in them all, but, but some had pretensions of being very superior. <laughs> and others were down to earth. The A and B was middle class, they wore suits. Right. And one day I was there and there was a raid, the police turned up. And the police were very polite, the manager, and they said, we want to see the membership book and we want to see the guest signatures as well. And when they'd looked, and apparently the books were well kept, they said, what a strange club this is. I don't see any females on, in this membership. It's all male. And the manager said, just like the Athenaeum Club, all male, or the Garrick. These were gentlemen's clubs in Pall Mall. Yeah. Excluding females. To get away from the women folk and just, yeah, yeah bond but with your fellow man. The Athenaeum was yeah. the most posh, upper-class, establishment. And they're probably all at it as well. Oh, well, let's forget that. <laughs> and of course, in those days, the police were all male, but I think they all were. Oh, they had secretaries, of course, female ones. Oh, yes. But, yeah, it's quite a male but, reserve. Uh, it was a different world. Mm. So we had the festival club from the Festival of Britain. That's when it was set up. That was in the produced place, an alleyway behind the Colosseum. Lots of alleyways yeah. in your stories. I love it. Oh, yeah. Well, the reason about alleyways <laughs> is that the property in them is cheaper and it's lower profile. Have you ever thought, in the old days, the gay beaches that existed, say, in Holland, mm. you always had to walk past all the other beaches mm. and the one at the end was the gay one. Mm. They were tucked away, partly for... Um, partly for... Discretion. Anonymous. Mm? <laughs> Just, yeah, absolutely. It, because people didn't want to be seen coming and going mm. and partly because it was always cheaper. The rent. I knew a guy who had a, a sauna in Leeds. Uh, it didn't advertise. It just had a small brass plate at the entrance. Right. You had to know. Uh, you had to know a member to to mention that member in order to get in. Okay. And it was very it was very run down. The carpets were all threadbare. And the bulbs were all forty watt bulbs. Mm. Mm. And he wouldn't spend any money. It was two houses knocked together. Oh. And he told me, he said, well, I could be raided tomorrow and lose all my investment. I'm not going to put any money in. Little things mean a lot. Don't have to buy me diamonds and pearls. You're listening to Scratch and Sniff with me, Nick Randall, on RTE Pulse, with my special guest, Michael Brown, who is a gay historian. When did you start campaigning for equality? Um, I'm to was totally outraged by what I considered to be the unfairness of it all, the law, and oppression. I didn't know that word, but uh, it was totally wrong and unfair, and I couldn't see any purpose. Yeah. Totally outraged. And I thought, what can I do about it? I still feel that way. I still campaign. One of the Jewish precepts is to mend the world. I used to read reports in the pr in the national press uh -huh. about cases like Lord Montague being arrested. In 1954, there was some, some other outrage. Somebody was convicted, and I can't remember what happened. They went to jail and so on. So I wrote a letter to the broadsheets the, under a false name, and I started writing letters to the press. There were no organisations in Britain. There were none internationally that I knew of. Later I discovered there was one in LA which had started in 1952 called the Mattachine Society. Um, so in Britain there were none. 
And there was no gay press, there was no gay media, there was no publicity. How could one find out where to go? Most people didn't live in the centre of London. I was very privileged. So I started writing letters to the press, and, and they mainly weren't published. Did you put your name? False name. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I didn't dare put my real name. Mm, sure. I was still frightened I might be arrested or something like that would happen, which would mean I'd be struck off as a dentist. Mm. I'd be shamed in the newspapers. I wouldn't be able to get another job. I would be th thrown out of my accommodation. I... It's to do with the housing laws. You can't use premises for immoral purposes, such mm. as having gay sex. I might be sent to jail, certainly be fined, and uh, cast out by my relatives, who'd been taught to be homophobes by the propaganda. Mm, absolutely. And uh, luckily, I, I didn't become a self-hater. But that's because I had uh, my Jewish upbringing, I think. And uh, after this letter writing, I discovered there was something was set up called the Homosexual Law Reform Society, which 52 Shaftesbury Avenue, second floor, okay. walked up the stone stairs to the second floor, no lift that I can remember, went in, and there was a woman sitting, a middle-aged, well, she seemed middle-aged to me. She was Doreen Cordell, and she was sitting at the desk and she said, how can I help you? And I said oh, well, I'd, I'd like to help. So I became a volunteer. And then never campaigned before. And that's how I began. And I began my campaigning there. I used to collect money from friends, dentists and others, gay friends. For them, I used to stuff envelopes. Uh, I went to one or two... I used to get their magazine. I went to a, a public meeting at the Caxton Hall eventually where there were loads of gay people. But again, this was presumably illegal. So, I mean, how were... I mean, what sort of year was this? It's mid-50s. Mid so basically, I mean, what did the police think you were all doing in these... In Well, it was perfectly legal to, to uh, campaign for a, a change in the law. Okay. Now, there were closet gays working for this, oh. including myself. I was in the closet. Everybody was in the closet. Except those who'd been convicted, of course. But there were a number of straights, and it was thought of as a straight organisation. So I guess the police thought you, perhaps they saw you as like a crackpot, lefty, but, but heterosexual organisation trying to get, get gay equality and stuff. It had MPs backing it. Right. It had peers, Lord... Uh, Boofy, uh, Lord Aaron, and they, between them, with others' help, managed to push change the law in 1967. We start from the view that there are some actions, some forms of behaviour, which most people would regard as sins, or at any rate as wrong. Now, the problem for the legislator, as I see it, is to try to decide which of those actions that are regarded as morally wrong should be made into crime. Now, unless you're going to try to legislate in such a way that you deliberately equate crime with sin, and if you do that, I strongly suspect that you abolish morality altogether. Unless you're going to do that, then I think there must be some actions that remain sins but are not crimes. For instance, adultery, fornication, which you do not send people to prison. And we said that in this field that we were concerned with, we worked out our own formulation of what the criminal law was for, and that was to preserve public order and decency, to protect the citizen from what was injurious, and to safeguard people against exploitation. We had the Wolfenden Committee first set up as a result of pressure, and the Wolfen Lord Wolfenden uh, made recommendations about changing homosexual law mm. and recommendations about changing the law on prostitution. They were thinking of female prostitution. The question of rent boys was pressed <laughs> under the carpet. Nobody knew about that officially. So, John, I'd like to put a question to you, if I may. You hold that it ought not to be illegal if it's private between consenting adults. Do you hold it to be immoral, the homosexual act? Well, um, they all could piss me. 
I think it depends again a bit what you mean by moral. I mean, it depends very much on what your what your standards of moral judgment are, what your criteria are. I, I'm interested in yours. Well, uh, I myself don't use the word immoral if I can help it, unless uh, there's going to be involved in this some uh, damage to some other personality. Would you say that it was not improper under the circumstances of the uh, the law now uh, obtained in in England? Improper. Yes. Not sure what that means. Well, then let me pursue it and put it this way. If it is held that it is not illegal, yep. and it may not be immoral, mm. uh, would you go so far as to advocate marriage among homosexuality? No, homosexuals? I, wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate it. I wouldn't, um, certainly, I wouldn't send people to prison for it. So, uh, his, the government was too shy to do anything about the recommendations of changing the homosexual law, uh, but they did did do things about um, pushing the ladies off the street right. and things like that. You mm. used to be stopped when I walked along in Soho. It's tidying it up. Would you like a Would you like a nice time, dearie? Come upstairs, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> that was stopped. Um, I get asked that all the time. Oh, lucky! Yes, I know. Lucky I turn them down. I'm, I haven't got the energy down. these days. No. Yeah, that's yes, it. That's right. <laughs> I used to know um, Lindy St. Clair. Indecent Claire? Lindy. Oh, Lindy. Saint Claire. Oh, Lindy St. Claire. I've always said Indecent Claire. <laughs> I thought, well, I want to meet her. But she's... I met, um, I met um, Cynthia Price more than once. Cynthia Payne? Cynthia Payne. I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. Cynthia, yes, yes. Cynthia I've, I've, Payne. Um, I've been in the room with her dancing once, and um, she was having a boogie with um, Pete Murray. Pete from Murray. Radio 2. Yes, yes. And they were like giving it all this. Yes. And I thought this is such a surreal moment in my yes, life. Yes, See right. Cynthia Payne having Cynthia a boogie with Madam Sin. Absolutely. Yeah. And Lindy St. Clair was Miss Whiplash. That's enough, the boss of you. Ouch! Scratch and Sniff with Nick Randall on RTE Pulse. Sponsored by Gay Community News, GCN.ie. Your essential guide to gay Ireland. You're listening to a Scratch and Sniff special tonight with my guest, gay historian Michael Brown. in my life was Gay Liberation Front. I was there about a month after it started at London School of Economics mm -hmm. and I was quite prominent and I, I, I started several things within. And that was, was in the 70s? In the early 70s. So presumably that was the same time Peter Tatchell, who we had on the show the other week, was talking yes. about the first Great Pride March in 1972. Which well, there was a march were... before that, the year oh, before, okay. which was a Gay Liberation Front mm -hmm. march. Uh, it took place amongst a very high-profile route, Marble Arch, Oxford Street, Oxford Circus, Regent Street to Trafalgar Square. Mm. About 200 of us and 400 police guarding us from... Yeah, we turned up in Trafalgar Square. You're tapping in on my memories now, mm. and, and I could go on for hours. <laughs> right, let's, we get to Trafalgar Square. <clears throat> Some of the people jump up on, on the plinths where the lions are, mm. I can remember one speech. A guy went up and he said, I'm, I'm a French student in London. Oh. And London's my favourite city. City I first got f***ed in. Oh. <laughs> and this, this was to the whole Trafalgar Square. Oh Imagine in, in 90 then, <laughs> with the police and all the families. And yes. this word, and this word, not just the F word, yeah. but, but in relation to a man... Yeah. Being f yeah, yeah, yes. and 
but it just passed by, and uh, I remember that. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Hey, sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. When the cenotaph happened, the 11th of November. Hmm. We had our office in King's Cross. Mm. We took a wreath of pink carnations in the form of a triangle, pink triangle, and we queued up after the official bouquets were put on. Mm. Yeah, uh, It's a war memorial, <coughs> both world wars. And on our bouquet it said to the, to the gay uh, victims of uh, concentration camps and the war, and uh, when we put it down, the police were there expecting us. And they grabbed the wreath and tore it up. Because I didn't realise that after the liberation of the Nazi concentration camps by Allied forces, uh, gays were not free but required to continue their, their, their sentence, as it were. Prison sentence. Yes, prison sentence. That was under the German law, oh, is it? Article 179, I think. Yes, that's it. Is, yeah, that's I remember right. reading that. But I find that extraordinary. After all they went through and the, suddenly there was liberation, well, they weren't allowed to leave. I never knew that. The knew German that. concentration camp guards, those who were given their pensions when they reached pension mm. age, but not, not the victims, mm. not the gay victims, mm. they had to go back to jail. 24 hours a day. RTE. Okay, so obviously the scene has evolved and changed over the years, and uh, we became officially legal in 1967, but the scene really didn't kick in for quite a long time afterwards. What was it like to be legal in the 70s but still stigmatised, and, and how did you get to party? Well, let me tell you a story. Tell me a story, just like Max Bygrove's gone. Uh... Well, I'll tell you a story about Gay Liberation Front, mm. the first ever gay ball, because previous to that, there'd been no gay, official gay disco dance or anything. Some things did happen secretly, or, or the Chelsea Arts Ball, but it wasn't mm. gay. We'd hired Kensington Town Hall, and we called it a gay a ball. Mm. Town halls are always a ball, never a disco. And uh, we turned up on the day, and the press were outside. And we were on the front page the next day because they had they'd never seen anything like this before. We turned up dressed Gay Liberation Front style, which was astounding. And uh, not just homemade clothes, but all sorts of things. We went in, and we were carrying this giant cock. I think it was about three metres long. <laughs> and uh, we carried this giant cock, papier-mâché, and that was just the start. Ginger Johnson was playing. He was a well-known West Indian band. There were lots of police in plain clothes because I heard from my contacts the police were expecting a giant orgy. Gay men? Well, there were some lesbians, but they didn't count. Um, <laughs> from police but the, waiting for the orgy to start, because that's mm. what they associated us with, mm. apart from being subversive. Mm. And uh, people were smoking joints quite openly, but the police didn't seem to notice. They were waiting for this orgy. Many of us had organised it. If some were arrested, we all insist on being arrested. Anyhow... Uh, we leapt around, we jumped, we did our own thing, we danced, and we all enjoyed ourselves. And the next day we were on the front page of the, the Express and yeah. the like, the, yeah, those papers. And that broke the barrier. It had happened. Hmm. They hadn't stopped us. We'd had a dance and it was openly gay. Hmm. And after that, we had a series of dances. And GLF, Gay Liberation Front, had its own social scene. And we had discos. I used to wear, as a dentist, I wore tweed jackets with leather patches on my sleeves. <laughs> and in a short time, my boyfriend said I ceased to be respectable. 
I was wearing homemade clothes. Mm. Um, I was wearing patch velvet jeans mm. with uh, bugle beads all over them that I'd made. Um, I was wearing <coughs> lots and lots of bright makeup, blusher, uh, ribbons, uh, pirate, pirate, what do they call them? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things, mm. uh, pirate um, yeah. at the back. At the back, yeah. Captain Morgan, I yes. called it. Oh, well. Colored Coloured ribbons in my hair, mm -hmm. walking around. I was wearing, in those days, nowadays, of course, I was wearing pink suede shoes, mm. not blue. <laughs> and uh, I was, uh, even in my surgery, I'd have uh, nail varnish, oh. green or something. And uh, You were one trendsetter, weren't you? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I used to be uh, 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 before Lee Bowery. Mm. I used to dress a bit like that, but I wasn't so professional as him. <laughs> um, and uh, I just went over the top. And my boyfriend left me. Oh, took, took the cat and went home to no! mother. No, and the pussy cat as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's, uh, oh well, more fool him. That's all we can oh, say well. on scratch and stiff. More fool him. <laughs> We had gay days in every Sunday. Sunday is a gay day in a different park, and we turn up in a park, and we would do our own thing. We play games, picnic, and make music in straight parks, as you might. They're all straight. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you uh, another story. This isn't really about the gay scene. This is about, but we influence the gay scene. We broke open the doors that made it possible to have discos. We made it possible. We started the gay press openly. There were one or two closety papers before. We had an open. We had our own press. We were very good at getting publicity. We had a kissing in Piccadilly Circus when it was illegal, and we got away with it. We got away with all sorts of things. Uh, this particular one was Victoria Park in East London. That's a working-class area. Sunny Sunday. We turned That's where up. I live, a working-class area. Well, it, it, it's been gentrified somewhat since. Uh, not where I'm living. <laughs> anyway. <Okay. laughs> so there were one or two cottages there. I haven't mentioned cottages mm. up to now. Public toilets, going to say. Public toilets. But I won't, I'm not talking about that at the moment. No, no. So that Disgraceful. Was one way of, that was one way of meeting gay men in the past. Sure. When you didn't know where to go. Mm. Um, so we turned up with... What's the, what's a huge drum like this? Is it a kettle drum? Or yes, I suppose so. That'll do. Yeah, anyway, we know what you mean. A big drum. Big, big brass drum bang on, drum. Yeah. Drum. Bang on both sides. So we marched in into the park, maximum noise and publicity. It was crowded with what are known as families. Mm. We were all brightly dressed. We found a bit of grass. We sat down yeah. and we brought out our food. We played, we often played games and we, we decided to play Kiss in the Middle. So the game of Kiss in the Middle is someone goes in the middle and throws a, a tennis ball or something like that into the circle that's surrounding it. Mm. The person that gets it comes in the middle and kisses the other one and then then stays by themselves and throws the, the ball mm. again. Mm. And after about 20 minutes of this, we were surrounded by very curious locals. Mm. The police arrive and they say somewhat, somewhat aggressively, and they march right into the middle, and there's two, there's two men there, kissing, in public. They're being going to be arrested. Indecency. And one of the men turns to the police. Turns out to be a lesbian. Oh right! And they can't do anything. Fantastic! What a story! Oh my God! Oh. I love it. Power to the people. 24 hours a day. RTE.
And just a quick reminder that if you want to comment on this or any other programme, please email sns at rte.ie. That's sns at rte.ie. Our Facebook like page is Scratch and Sniff on RTE Pulse and Twitter is Scratch and Tweet. Well, back to gay historian Michael Brown now with issues some people had of not only his homosexuality, but his religion. Pulse. Well, there was some anti-Semitism in Gay Liberation Front. Okay. And as a result, myself and another guy, Jewish guy, we started the um, Jewish gay group within Gay Liberation Front. So, 70s, 80s? It was 1972, I okay. think. And we set it up as a campaigning group. Gay Liberation Front itself didn't last all that long in London, the original one, about four years at most. Later on, I set up the Jewish AIDS Trust, it obviously in the AIDS period, in the 80s. Mm. I also set up the All-Parliamentary AIDS Committee, although I'm not a, an MP. I, I, was on the, I set up the AIDS Committee in the Gay Medical Association, and with an AIDS doctor, the two of us, I took the AIDS doctors along to meet the MPs and used to have to write them letters to invite them, MPs and peers. And I kept doing that with different AIDS doctors and eventually out of that came the Old Parliamentary AIDS Committee. Wow. I was evicted because there was a closet MP who objected to me, said he's not an MP or a peer. He's dead now. Yeah. I'm missing out groups because I can't remember all of them. You've certainly done an awful lot of campaigning um, over the years, yeah, is what I'm getting yeah, many the more. impression. Mm. So what, what's your feeling now? How far have we moved forward in terms of uh, the gay voice and the quality compared to life in the 50s? I mean, are, are you pleased with how far we've got or is there so much further to go? Well, we've done, we've done pretty much law change. Mm. The, the next thing, of course, is the way the law is applied, and apparently that large numbers of gay men are still very reluctant to get involved with the police in reporting mm. crimes. They're not... Gay mindset has to change. Mm. We're not quite trust, trusting of the authorities. But there's public attitudes. Yeah, and education, I guess. And education. Mm. There's also the problem of campaigning, which I was telling you a little earlier. Mm. In the beginning, it's partly to do with the 70s. Do your own thing, Mm. be yourself and let it all hang out. Mm. Society has changed. People, I think, now are much more conformist. Although they apparently rebel, but they often rebel along conventional lines. They just tend to raise their eyebrows and go... Well, there's that. I've noticed these days. Yes, but... um, (laughs) Yes, noticed. So... The problem is we haven't really got campaigning organisations. The movement's nearly disappeared. Because we feel we've got what we want Well, on a, on a certain level. You could analyse it. That's one of the reasons. Lots of people think we've got what we want. Mm. Those of us who've been in campaigning think things can change overnight mm. or even over a longer period. Mm. If there's a, a slump, mm. economic slump, it's never good for minority groups. Politicians who get to power Why is hate that? us. Why is that? The uh, economy we, crashing. Uh, it's <clears throat> usually considered, I'm not an economist, that they need scapegoats oh. uh, to blame, such as queers, Jews. Are you talking about a really catastrophic... Well, like the slump in 1930s. Yeah, OK. It led to um, the Nazis. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so a weak point where somebody can take over... A, Yeah, but it's not only that. I didn't want to do a political analysis, but there could be a backlash, a moral backlash, which is not so severe as that, and there could be clampdowns on a lot of things that gay men do, or gay society does, that is considered by large numbers of people as being indecent and immoral, Mm -hmm. such as sex clubs. I mean, do you feel that... I mean, I was always have this idea that in, in, say, 50 years' time, we might not have gay clubs because we won't... Those sort of uh, issues of, of, of um, putting people in, in one pen or another just won't exist. So people will be either gay, straight or bisexual, but it just won't be... They won't feel hemmed in, so they'll be allowed to explore what they want to explore, the people who are 
80% straight will explore, but then presumably will get married and stuff. Do you ever, do you see a lovely sort of vision? Well, that's one scenario, and Peter Tatchell hopes that it won't be important to state that you're gay. That presumes that progress in our favour just go just continues and continues. Mm. That doesn't normally happen. Think about the early Russian Revolution, when there was a lot of liberation for gay people in the early years, and then it changed. It changed to um, when Stalin got in power. Mm. This is what happens to gay rights campaigners in Moscow. They'd gathered to call for a gay pride march in the city, something the mayor of Moscow has described as satanic. They were confronted by a group of orthodox Christians and right-wing nationalists. The chant means Russia without homosexuals. I study history. I, I, I myself am somewhat optimistic. Good. But I do think that gay people should do much more for ourselves. And uh, there does seem to be a great falling off. I, I mentioned a falling off in campaigning. I'm basically nowadays a bit of um, a maverick because all the organisations other than Stonewall, we hear about Peter Tatchell, but he's a celebrity. We just don't have a movement much now. And the gay press has tended to go move towards um, being uh, commercial. We were lucky with the AIDS crisis. That's another thing, something could happen. If we hadn't taken action, gay people, what, what would have happened to us if we hadn't been able to counter homophobia? Yeah, absolutely. No. The disease called AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, sounds less than deadly, more like a diet pill. AIDS has struck only a reported 1,500 people, but it has killed almost 600 of them, and as yet no one with AIDS has been cured. Puzzling new disease has appeared in the past couple of years that is spreading rapidly among homosexuals, and it is a disease that is fatal. Do you are raising the possibility that people are dismissing it because it strikes mostly the gay community? There is no question in my mind. If this were happening to you and the white, straight, middle-class community, it would have been attended to a long time ago. Congress wants to know what to do about AIDS. Victims of the disease say the government has done nothing and has no plan to. Committee members were told that victims are often gay men. Things do happen. Totally, totally. Michael, I mean, uh, you've been campaigning most of your life. There's been some extraordinary achievements, and now you're using all this knowledge as a historian to impart to others. Where do you go to speak to the youngsters uh, so they can, you can teach them a little bit about uh, what it was like? Well, we're talking to the Science Museum mm -hmm. about 1950s, about the gay life of Alan Turing, the father of the computer, not about his computing side, but his what his gay life might have been like. And there'll be an exhibition soon at the Science Museum. I got up on the stage in a gay pub the other day, and I did a stand-up comic turn based on gay anecdotes of the 50s. Are you going to tell us where this was? Oh, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. The Royal Vauxhall Tavern, where we interviewed Celia Pecuola and Helen Arney um, not so long ago. So we have another stand-up comedian in our midst. How exciting! Yeah. And I plan to go back. Well, we'll be there. We'll be there. Yeah. To I catch can. your turn, sir. Oh, yes. Fantastic. Well, Michael Brown, thank you so much for joining Scratch and Sniff tonight and imparting all your, your knowledge about um, our heritage. And we wish more people like you about. Keep doing what you're doing. We're very excited about your comedy as well, of the Royal Vauxhall Tamman, as well as all your gay history lectures, etc. And, and uh, do come back to visit us sometime. Oh, thanks. I'm hoping my new career will be a stand-up comic. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you so much. 
Secret love's no secrets and 